The family life of Herod Antipas looked like an episode out of a TV soap opera. On a trip to Rome, he fell in love with his brother's wife, Herodias. And their adultery ended in divorce and in their own marriage. And when the pastor asked, if anyone objects to the union, let him speak now or forever hold his peace, John the Baptist spoke up boldly. He exposed the king's sin. He called him on the carpet. And he angered the newlyweds. Herod wanted to kill John, but he didn't for fear of the multitudes. They considered John a prophet from God. As it turns out, his wife was not as politically sensitive. At Herod's birthday party, Herodias gave her husband a special present. She had her daughter dance. Now understand, this wasn't a foxtrot. This wasn't a square dance. This wasn't even a cheerleading routine. This was a lewd, seductive dance. This was a strip tease. It seems the girl and her mom wanted to get ahead in life. John's head, that is. And when the dance was done, Herod offered her whatever she wanted. In fact, in the book of Mark, Mark adds the qualifier, up to half of my kingdom. And you know, if Herod had valued John more than half of his kingdom, he could have saved him. Evidently, that idea never crossed his mind. Herod ordered John's execution and served up his head on a platter. Jesus had retreated to an off-beaten location or a place off the path there. As a matter of fact, there wasn't a McDonald's or a Waffle House for miles and miles around. The disciples wanted to send the hungry crowd home, but not Jesus. He tells them, go out and feed the crowd. And when they check the brown bags, all that they can gather up are five loaves and two fish. It's not much. But notice verse 18 in chapter 14. That's the key. Jesus says, bring them here to me. Guys, bring your meager portion to Jesus. The little you are, the little you have. And Jesus will work a miracle of multiplication in your life, just as he did that day in Galilee. Verse 19 tells us that Jesus did four things with the bread and fish. He took it. He blessed it. He broke it. And then he gave it to the multitude. And guess what? He does the same four things in our lives. He takes us out of this world and makes us his own. He blesses us with spiritual riches in Christ Jesus. And he wants to give us as a witness to this world. But guess what? We're indigestible. The world can't. They'll choke on us unless we're broken. And so he has to break us of our pride, of our stubbornness, of our self-righteousness, of our self-sufficiency. He has to teach us how much we need him and how much we have to rely on the Holy Spirit. Then he can use us. Guys, it doesn't matter how little you have, how little you are. Give your all to Jesus Christ and there's no limit to what he can do. Jesus took the five loaves and the two fish and he altered the molecules in those fish and chips. And with him, he fed 5,000 men with less than a lunchbox full. That's just the men. When you add the women and the kids, he probably fed 20,000 mouths that day. Notice, too, in the story, 
The 12 baskets of leftovers. Isn't that interesting that there were 12? I think there was one basket of leftovers for each of the disciples. Maybe a little lesson for them to take home with them. In verse 23, the disciples get in trouble. Notice this. Because they obey Jesus. Because they obey Jesus, they get in trouble. They sail into a storm. Guys, rather than shelter us, sometimes obedience puts us in the center of the storm. Two things happen suddenly in the story. There's a sudden storm and there is a supernatural surprise. The disciples think they're fighting the storm alone. It hits them all of a sudden. They assume Jesus is nowhere to be found. But then lo and behold, suddenly he's now here. And isn't that the truth in our lives? Sometimes we think he's nowhere, and then suddenly, now here. It was in the fourth watch of the night, around three o'clock in the morning. Jesus appeared to them walking on the water. When the disciples see Jesus, they freak. They think he's a ghost. But in verse 27, Jesus speaks to them, Be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. Notice he calms the storm in the hearts of the disciples, even before he calms the storm on the sea. In verse 28, Peter decides to do some supernatural surfing. He's staying above the water. He's doing quite well walking on the water until all of a sudden we're told he saw that the wind was boisterous and he was afraid and beginning to sink. Notice he did a fine job as long as his focus was on Jesus Christ. When he got his eyes off the Savior, when he put his eyes on the circumstances, he began to sink like a brick. Guys, focus determines our flotation. If we want to live life above our difficulties, above our troubles, we need to keep our eyes on Jesus. Hey, get your eyes off of Jesus, onto your circumstances, and that's when you'll sink too. Often, Peter takes a black eye for this episode. Oh, Peter's the one that sunk. He's the one that walked and took his eyes off Jesus and sunk in the water. But you know, I admire Peter here. Notice he is the only disciple who gets out of the boat. You can't walk on the water if you stay in the boat. And when Peter sinks, notice he knows what to do. He cries to Jesus and the Lord rescues him. Hey, I'd rather surf than sink than to play it safe and never leave the boat. Remember, the Lord who allowed the storm in the end put an end to the storm. He's faithful to calm the storms in our lives. The rabbis believed that along with the law, God also gave to Moses further instructions that he didn't write down, but that he passed on orally. These oral traditions weren't written down until the second century A.D. in a book called the Mishnah. Some rabbis considered these traditions to be as important as the law itself. Of particular importance were the traditions concerning external washings. You see, the rabbis taught that a demon could come at night and actually sit on your hands. And if you didn't wash your hands before breakfast, the demon could enter your body via the food. Jesus knew this superstition, and he ignored these Jewish traditions, all of these rules about washing and so forth. Jesus understood that many of their traditions were actually loopholes to get around the law. He brings up the example of an offering dedicated to the temple. You see, the law said, honor your parents. But if your parents had a financial need 
and they and you didn't want to help them. You had the money earmarked for something else. Jewish tradition had a means for you to launder the money. You could just dedicate it to the temple. And therefore, you could place it outside of the reach of your needy parents. They had all kinds of little loopholes around the law that had risen through their tradition. And in verse 6, Jesus exposes this scam and the others when he says, Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. You see, their tradition had become a way around the law of God. In chapter 15, verse 9, Jesus accuses the Jews of teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Guys, this is still a problem. Never place tradition over truth. Some traditions are passed off as biblical, that are nothing more than human conjecture. And just because a tradition might be helpful today doesn't mean that it will serve the same purpose tomorrow. That's why we need to be flexible as well. One commentator calls verse 11 of chapter 15 the most revolutionary passage in the New Testament. For you see, dietary laws, as well as outward washings, were central to Judaism. Jesus again attacks Jewish tradition in verse 11 when he says, Not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. You see, Jesus knew that the purity God desires doesn't originate on your plate. It's not the right dietary thing. It doesn't originate on your hands in the external washings. The purity God wants originates in our hearts. It's a heart purity. It's an attitude purity. That's what God requires. In verse 12, the disciples informed Jesus that he may have offended the Pharisees. (laughs) Well, Jesus informs them that what's not of God will be uprooted. In fact, Jesus was not afraid to offend anybody who needed to be offended. I like the old quotation, Jesus came to comfort the disturbed and to disturb the comfortable. And he does some disturbing, some offending in verse 14, when Jesus calls the Pharisees blind leaders of the blind. The Pharisees and their followers were headed for a fall. Jesus had this uncanny ability to sense faith in other people. He could spy out faith, and then he could turn and draw that faith out of that person. A good example of it is here in these next few verses. While in Phoenicia, a Gentile woman with a demon-possessed child comes and seeks Jesus' help. He reacts to the woman in verse 23. He answered her not a word. Next, he seems to discourage the lady. He says his primary mission is to Israel. When she appeals to Jesus again, Lord, help me. He compares the Gentiles to a puppy sitting under the table and the Jews to the kids eating the meal at the table. And then he says no one would deliberately take food from the children and give it to the puppies. Of course they would. Now, catch this. Jesus was silent at first. Then he, he, he gets, it's almost as if he's playing hard to get. He's, he's being coy. It's a way, though, of testing her determination. That's what he's doing. He's drawing faith from the woman. Remember that the next time Jesus is silent to your cries. The next time Jesus seems to be playing hard to get. When you pray and pray and pray and there's no answer. Remember what he's doing. He's growing your faith as well. She says in verse 27, True Lord, 
Yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. What a great answer. She believes that even though the Jews are God's chosen people, there is still food for the Gentiles at God's table. Aren't we glad? And in verse 28, Jesus reveals his true feelings. O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And catch this. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Verse 29 tells us that Jesus went eastward into the Decapolis or the ten cities. This too was a Gentile region. And Jesus proved that he was willing to heal even the Gentiles. As a matter of fact, Jesus heals everyone who bows down before him. Of course, during the three days, Jesus worked many miracles and the people got hungry. And you would think that the disciples had learned by now. They had just seen Jesus feed 5,000 with five loaves. Now there's just 4,000 and they got a whole whopping seven loaves this time. And yet they're still just as clueless. In fairness to the disciples, though, I don't think they doubted, could he do it, as much as they doubted, would he do it? In other words, will he do for the Gentiles now, he's in Gentile territory, what he had done earlier for the Jews? You know, I think that's our question sometimes. I think that's where our faith stumbles. Oh, yeah, we believe Jesus can do it for us. But do we believe he will do it for us? And again, this time he feeds 4,000 people with the seven loaves. Political campaigns have them. So do wars. So do stock car races. So do business careers. So do romances. So do baseball games and football games. They're called turning points. A presidential hopeful makes a slip of the tongue. It's the turning point in the campaign. Or a skillful driver goes into the turn and slips down under the leader. Again, the turning point. Or a young salesman lands a giant account. At the time, you don't realize it. But years later, you look back on the moment and you see that was where the momentum shift. That was where the focus changed. That was the turning point. Well, chapters 16 and 17 are the turning point in the ministry of Jesus. You can think of it this way. There are two semesters in Jesus' instructions to his disciples. The first semester could be entitled, My Identity. The second semester entitled, My Destiny. My Identity, My Destiny. Through chapter 15, from the beginning to chapter 15, the point of Jesus' miracles, the point of his teaching, is to spotlight who he is. He is the Christ. But from chapter 17 until the end of his ministry, the emphasis is on where is he going? The cross. And chapter 16 and 17 are the turning point. The turning point occurs by a brook on the southern slopes of Mount Hermon, 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. In verse 13, Jesus asks his disciples, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And there were all kinds of opinions. Some said John the Baptist, others Elijah, some Jeremiah, or a special prophet from God. But in verse 14, Jesus asks the million-dollar question. Who do you say that I am? And of course, this is the crucial question for you and I. What do we believe about Jesus Christ? 
14-year-old Matilda Crabtree and her dad loved to play practical jokes. They especially liked to scare each other. Well, one night, Matilda told her parents that she was going to a friend's house, but instead she stayed home and she hid in their closet. And in the middle of the night, she started making scary, spooky noises. Well, when her dad opened the door of the closet, Matilda Matilda screamed, boo. And when she did, her frightened father shot her in the neck with his 357 pistol. The little girl's final words to her daddy were, I love you, daddy. Cases of mistaken identity can be deadly. And here is the ultimate example. If you can't rightly identify Jesus, if you don't know him as Peter did, the Christ, the son of the living God, it can cost you dearly. Die for all eternity. Peter steps up and he answers Jesus's question. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. And Jesus basically says to him right on a plus Peter, you got it. God in heaven revealed that to you, Pete. Then Jesus adds in verse 18, I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now, in the original Greek, Peter and rock are the same words, but they're in different genders. Peter is Petros, the masculine, and it means pebble. The word rock or Petra, the feminine, speaks of a cliff or a sheer mountain face. Jesus, in essence, reaches down in that brook there at Caesarea Philippi and he pulls out a couple of pebbles. He sort of lets them fall from his hand and he says, Simon, from now on, you're going to be called Peter, a little pebble. But then he turns and points to the sheer rock wall that's right behind that little brook. And he says, in contrast, the Christ of whom you have spoken is this huge mountain. And it's on your statement of faith that I will build my church. Notice in this passage, three truths about the church. First, Jesus bought the church. He says, it's my church. I will build my church. Second, Jesus builds the church. I will build it, he says. Jesus never asks us, guys, to build the church. He only asks us to be the church. If we be it, he will build it. And then third, Jesus does battle through the church. Even the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Gates are defensive. That means that the church should always be on the attack. Here's the turning point. Who is Jesus? He's the Messiah. But now, where is he going? And he tells them in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Now, the disciples know Jesus is the Christ. Now they learn he is headed to the cross. And perhaps this was the harder lesson for them to learn. It certainly was for Peter. He had trouble digesting it. Verse 22 tells us that Peter goes on and he rebukes Jesus. Far be it from you, Lord. This shall not happen to you. And Jesus replied, Get behind me, Satan. Isn't it odd, but can't we relate? One moment, Peter receives a revelation from God. The next moment, he's Satan's pawn. Jesus is headed for the cross. 
And he says in verse 24, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Hear what Jesus is saying to his disciples. You wanted to follow me when you knew who I was. But what about now? Now that you know where I'm going. What about you? You know, if you follow Jesus, there's a cross in your future. Will you lay aside your selfish ambitions? Will you deny yourself? Will you lose your life for Jesus' sake? Are you willing to follow Jesus even to the cross? In the last verse of chapter 16, Jesus says, There are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. And Jesus is speaking of what happens six days later in chapter 17. He, Peter, James, and John climbed the 9,000-foot slopes of Mount Hermon. But in a sense, guys, they hike all the way to heaven. For this mountain is about to behold a miracle. Jesus was transfigured. We're told his face began to beam. His clothes became as white as light. Moses and Elijah, representing the law and the prophets, stood by his side. And his father spoke from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Now, the Greek word translated transfigured is from the is the word from which we get our word metamorphosis. It means to change from the inside out for a moment. What happens is the humanity of Jesus is peeled back and Jesus can be seen in all his heavenly glory. What a sight to behold. Understand this was the climax of the first semester of the disciples training. Jesus teaches them who he is. And then in essence, he takes his prized pupils on a special field trip for them to see for themselves. Peter, though, he wants to stay on the field trip. He wants to stay there on the mountain. It's fun to bask in God's glory. Hey, he says in verse four, let's pitch tents. But that's not the point. Oh, the glory will come, but the cross comes first. The Jews killed John. Jesus will suffer also. God lets them see Jesus transfigured so they won't lose heart when they see him disfigured on the cross. When they descend from Mount Hermon, the disciples are reminded why God gives us mountaintop experiences from time to time. Those mountaintop experiences prepare us for the battle below. For immediately they are confronted with a boy possessed by a demon. See, at times this kid, he, he throws, he, he is overwhelmed by these epileptic-like fits. He even throws himself into the fire uncontrollably. And the disciples are impotent to help this boy. It takes Jesus to come to the rescue and cast out the demon. Later to the disciples, they wonder why they are so powerless over the demon. And Jesus tells them their problem is twofold. Faithlessness and prayerlessness. How we need to bulk up on both faith and prayer if we want to gain some spiritual muscle. It was the fall of the year and the temple tax was paid during the springtime. That meant that the temple tax agents 
had tracked Jesus' down. They had pointed out that his payment was six months overdue. Leave it to the tax agents to try to spoil the party. Well, first, Jesus tells them that he really doesn't owe any tax. He says, does a son pay rent to his father? No. So why would God's son pay his father tax to stay in his own house? The temple. Jesus didn't owe any tax, but apparently the issue was not worth fighting. And so he pays up. It's been said, a bulldog can whip a skunk, but is it really worth the effort? Some victories aren't really worth the effort you spend to win them. What's fascinating, though, about this story is how Jesus raises funds. (laughs) Jesus sends Peter to the lake with his rod and reel to catch a fish. Peter's told to look in its mouth, and there he'll find the exact coin needed to pay the taxes. It's a miracle. Now, ask the odds makers the probability of a single fish swimming among millions of fish, having a coin in its mouth, swimming in a lake 14 miles long by 8 miles wide, striking a specific baited hook, just as Peter plops that worm down into the water and then yielding exact change. Hey, Jesus loves us so much, he's even willing to help us pay our back taxes. College fans have their Heisman Trophy. Pro football has the Jim Thorpe Award. NHL hockey has the Hart Memorial Trophy, and college basketball has the Wooten Award. Now, what's interesting is that football, hockey, basketball, they're all team sports. The focus is on the success of the team, but there is still a desire to pick out the best and most successful player, individual player. That's why there's employees of the month. That's why there's deacons of the week. Why a kid can't even play Little League Baseball without some parent wanting to select all-stars. In fact, Jesus' own disciples come to him and ask him to name the MVP. Matthew chapter 18, verse 1. Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? It must have blown, blown them away when Jesus reaches over and he picks up this little child out of the crowd, holds him up for everyone to see, and then answers their question in verse 4. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Once an elderly man walked into a toy store and he stood there just gazing at the electric trains as they rumbled around the tracks. With a gleam in his eye, he told the clerk, he said, hey, I'll take one of those. Well, the clerk said, that's nice. I bet your grandson will really love a new train set. That's when the man thought for a minute, sort of scratched his head, and then he responded, you know, you're right. You better get him one too. (laughs) In certain ways, Jesus wants all of us to be like little children. A little child is sincere. Child is sensitive, simple, submissive. That's how we need to be. An adult is two-faced, too calloused, too complicated, too conceited. And that's how we shouldn't be. 
Hey, when it comes to faith, we need to turn back the clock and return to a childlike faith. A child is Jesus's MVP. In the next few verses, Jesus warns this evil world of hurting believers who have this childlike faith. Persecution will come, but woe to him who initiates the harm. Harm a follower of Jesus and God will avenge. You'll wish the Jewish mafia had fashioned a millstone for a necklace and dropped you in the ocean by the time he gets through with you. In verses 10 through 14, Jesus tells the story of the lost sheep. The shepherd leaves the 99 to seek out the one. And this is God's attitude toward you and me. He loves each one of us individually and personally. It's been said God loves each one of us as if there were only one of us to love. And speaking of that one lost sheep, Jesus tells us how we should restore him to the church after he's been found. Reconciliation is a threefold process. First, if a brother or sister sins against you, then you should go to that person and work it out. Second, if they won't listen, then you should go back to them with one or two witnesses. And still, third, if they're unrepentant in an appropriate manner, you should bring them up before the church. And if all else fails, then you should remove them from the membership of the church and consider them an unbeliever. And we've had to do that unpleasant task on several occasions here at Calvary Chapel, and it is always hard. Trust me. But more times than not, the person that was excommunicated has repented and returned. It's hard, but if you follow Jesus's pattern, it works. In verses 18 and 19, Jesus gave the 12 apostles authority to bind and to loose. Binding and loosing are rabbinical terms that mean to prohibit or to approve. You see, the apostles use this authority to establish the faith and practice of the early church. Acts chapter 15 is a great example of binding and loosing in action. This is what gave the 12 apostles their authority to oversee the writing of the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 19, Jesus encourages his followers to pray as a team. He says, if you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Now, I have four kids. And seldom do they agree on anything. At times, I just tell them, guys, if you can just agree, we'll do it. You know, just agree on something. I don't care what it is, and we'll do it. I just would love to see some unity. I'll reward some unity. I believe this is Jesus' point here. He says, guys, agree together. Find some common ground. Unite in prayer. And your prayer will carry some extra punch. I'll answer that prayer. He tells us when just two or three gather together in Jesus' name, he promises to be right there with us. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 21 Peter asks if it's enough to forgive your brother seven times. Now, the Jewish rabbis taught that you should forgive a person two or three times, that that was enough. Peter thinks it's seven times. Oh, man, look how far I'm willing to go. Seven times. That's extremely generous. But in verse 22, Jesus tells him, I do not say to you up to seven times but up to 70 times 7. Now, that doesn't mean you count 490 times and then you punch the guy. (laughs) If you're keeping count, you're missing the point. 
He's saying, put no limitations on your willingness to forgive. And he uses a parable to illustrate this lesson. A guy forgives a man 10 million bucks. But this forgiven man, he's not very thankful to the king who's just forgiven him because he goes out and he finds a guy who owes him 20 bucks. He has him arrested. He tightens down the screws. And when he comes back to the king, he goes back and arrests the first man and instructs the torturers to teach him a lesson. The moral of the story, you forgive others to the same degree that God has forgiven you. In chapter 19, verse 3, the Pharisees test Jesus with a question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason. Now, this was the hot theological topic of the day. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, had stipulated that when a man divorced his wife for, quote, some uncleanness, end quote, it was his duty to write her a certificate of divorce and to send her away properly. The rabbis debated what constituted an uncleanness. Rabbi Hillel said that it was anything... If she burned your dinner, that was enough. Rabbi Shammai limited it to sexual promiscuity. But both schools were in error because they assumed that Moses' intent was to condone divorce. It wasn't. Moses was simply trying to discourage something that already existed by regulating the practice. You see, the law... Wasn't This law wasn't a commandment, it was a concession to their weakness. Jesus straightens it all out by going back to the very first marriage. He says, okay, if we want to see what God's will is, let's go back to the ideal. Let's go back to what he created. And at creation, you see what God intended for marriage. One man, one woman, and a lifelong loving commitment. You see, Deuteronomy 24 was a concession to hard hearts. Old Testament saints had yet to receive the power of the Holy Spirit. And if the choice between two people was them killing each other or getting a divorce, then Moses permitted the divorce. But as Christians, guys, you and I have no excuse for a hard heart, do we? The Holy Spirit lives within us. And that's why Jesus says in verse 9, The only biblical justification for divorce and remarriage is sexual immorality. First Corinthians chapter seven gives us another and that's abandonment. But other than those two, husband and wife, soften your heart and work it out. That's God's will for you. Note the context of this passage. It's after Jesus is teaching on forgiveness in chapter 18. Forgive as God has forgiven you and start with your spouse. And if it's too late, if the divorce is final, then ask God to forgive you. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. God forgives if we're determined not to repeat our mistakes. Verse 16 introduces to us a rich and a young ruler. Man, this guy, he's got money, he's got power, youth. Enthusiasm, a lifetime of moral living. He's got it all. This guy would be an asset to any Christian ministry. Most pastors would have made him an elder. But Jesus knows that there's one thing he lacks. 
And in verse 21, Jesus strikes at the heart of his problem. He says, go sell what you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. You see, he had not yet yielded his life to God. Money was his idol. Here's a lesson for us. Before we can follow Jesus, guys, we first have to get rid of our idols. We have to dump our other gods. For this man, it was his money. But what's your idol? Is it a job? Sports? A car? Alcohol? Drugs? Sex? You see, the rich young ruler went away sorrowful because he loved his money more than Jesus. Obviously, this exchange shook up the disciples. Jesus seemed to have turned away an ideal disciple. And in the next few verses, Jesus addresses their confusion. First, he says, it is tough for a rich man to enter heaven. It's like a camel passing through the eye of a needle. You know, wealth tends to strangle faith. And yet he says, with God, all things are possible. There's still hope. Second, if the man had given away his wealth, understand he wouldn't have given it away for long. For in the kingdom, anyone who sacrifices for Jesus' sake will be more than repaid. Jesus says in verse 29, they shall receive a hundredfold and inherit everlasting life. And third, verse 30, he says, many who are first will be last and the last first. Heaven is going to hold lots and lots of surprises Some of earth's rich young rulers won't be ruling in heaven. The highest posts in the kingdom will be occupied by folks that you've never heard of on earth. Heavenly rewards are doled out differently than earthly riches. In the kingdom of God, the rules change. And in chapter 20, Jesus illustrates this with a parable. You see, on earth, a man's compensation is determined by his contribution. The guys who sweat and slave in the vineyard from sunup to sundown, from 6A to 6P, they expect a greater pay than the guys who work for a single hour. And when the boss pays the 5 p.m. guys the same wage that they were expecting, they get excited. Surely there's more money in this for us. We're going to get a bonus. When it doesn't happen, they hit the roof. They want to file a grievance. But here's Jesus' point. Rewards in the kingdom are based on two rules. God's grace and God's sovereignty. You see, the guys who insisted on a fair day's pay, they got it. But the guys who left it up to the landowner to determine what they were to be paid. The guys who trusted in his generosity and in his grace. Oh, man, they got far more than they deserved. Grace is better than fairness. I'd much rather be on a grace basis than want what I deserve. Don't settle for what's fair. Trust in God's amazing grace. In chapter 20, verse 17, Jesus embarks on his final trip to Jerusalem. Betrayal, arrest, mockery, scourging, crucifixion are now just days away. And the disciples are totally oblivious. The next exchange proves just how dense they were. 
Their eyes are on their own exaltation, their own glory. Salome, the mother of James and John, she comes to Jesus with her two sons. And she asks if they can occupy the most prominent places when he establishes his kingdom. In essence, Jesus sort of shakes his head and he says, man, your thinking is so far off. A cup of suffering awaits us. A baptism of death, not glory and greatness. A cross is ahead, not a crown. Verse 24 tells us, when the ten disciples heard of the power play that James and John had tried to pull, I mean, they'd even put their mother up to it. The other disciples, they got upset. They too wanted to be the greatest But in verses 24 through 28, Jesus defines true greatness. The world measures greatness by the number of people under you. But it's just the opposite in God's kingdom. The greatest in the kingdom is the servant of all. Leaders among the Gentiles, they gain power and they manipulate people. But leaders in God's kingdom, they give power away. And they serve other people. Verse 28 Holds Jesus up as the ultimate example. Just as the son of man did not come to be served. But to serve. And to give his life a ransom for many. If Jesus came to earth to to serve. Well then who are we not to do likewise? As Jesus leaves Jericho. And begins the climb up to Jerusalem. He's met by two blind men. They're calling for Jesus. In fact they're screaming loudly. The crowd is telling them to shut up. But I like this. They don't they won't be deterred. They they won't be intimidated. Hey, they won't be discouraged from seeking Jesus Christ. And I hope you have that same attitude. Don't let anyone scare you off or shut you up. These blind men kept calling until Jesus called back and opened their eyes. And if you'll keep calling, Jesus will come and he'll open your eyes. He'll do great things in your life. He wants to work miracles in you. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. We thank you for our survey through these chapters. Lord, we pray that that we can hide those things in our hearts that you've spoken to us about. Little nuggets here and there. Things that, that, that hit us. And now we can go back and we can ponder these things. And we can look at them more thoroughly and apply them to our lives. Father, continue to bless us as we move chapter by chapter through your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.